Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peek. We hear a lot about vaccine hesitancy, but there's another reason why vaccination levels may not be quite where we'd like them to be, and that's vaccine apathy. Stacy Wood is the Langdon Distinguished University Professor of Marketing at NC State's Poole College of Management. She's here to explain what vaccine apathy is and what public health officials can do to recognize and possibly overcome it. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Tracy. I'm glad to be with you. I am glad that you are here. Let's start by defining terms. What is vaccine apathy? Well, the first thing we want to know is that it's not generic apathy in terms of people aren't apathetic about their lives or about other things. It's about being apathetic specifically about the COVID vaccine. So with vaccine apathy, we would expect to see people simply not even consider whether they needed the vaccine or not, not put a lot of thought into it, not be very negative about it, but also not be very positive. It's just a very low priority choice. What what drives this attitude? I mean, with the media coverage, everything from the last year, is there a certain demographic that tends to be more apathetic, like young people who are thinking, you know, I'm immortal, (laughs) I'm therefore immune, this does not concern me in the least. Is there anything like that going on? Or is it, you know, do you find it just across demographics? I think it is particular in certain demographics, but also certain psychographics. So it's nice to be able to think of people, you know, in terms of age populations or where they live, whether they're in a rural area or an urban area. But we also like to think about psychographics, which are the idea that people can be segmented based on attitudes or lifestyles or just ways of relating to the world, um, interests. Demographics would say there are people who might be categorized by age, gender, uh, where they live, how much money they make, race. And while there are uh, certainly groups like younger groups who seem to be a little bit less um, interested in the vaccine, I think it's better to think about psychographic segments for vaccine apathy. Um, And these might be people who feel very healthy, very strong, think that it's unlikely that they're gonna get sick because they live in a a low um, density area. So there's lots of open air around them where they live or where they work. Um, They just don't feel as at risk. Or another psychographic that we might be running into are people who have um, distrust or experience with systemic racism in healthcare. And so they say, anytime I hear some kind of institutionalized medical um, uh, recommendations, that's not for me. That's for some other group of people, but for me, that is um, just not something I'm gonna pay attention to. So when we think of apathy in the sense of vaccine apathy, we wanna just think about people who aren't paying attention for whom they literally aren't thinking about whether or not they should do it, which is very different from vaccine hesitancy, where people are thinking, should I get the vaccine? Oh, I'm worried, I'd like more information, let me just wait a bit till there's more data, or here's something I'm specifically concerned about, and I've searched online for as much information as I can, I've talked to lots of people, and that is um, something very different from apathy. Uh, The problem, is is that when we only try to address vaccine hesitancy, we use messaging that actually is counterproductive for people who have low involvement in the vaccine or vaccine apathy. 
And that's what I wanted to get into next. So this group of people who've just kind of tuned it out, they're just not paying attention. So what messages do work best to persuade an apathetic person as opposed to a hesitant person? So if you think about it, uh, the hesitant person is thinking a lot. Should I or should I? And the vaccine apathetic person has just taken this off their to-do list. It's not even in that mental consideration set of should I do this or not. And so it's a term that in marketing we use called involvement. So those with high involvement are people who are using a lot of mental resources to think about the choice. They're highly involved in the choice. Other people are low involvement, meaning they do not put a lot of mental resources into making the choice. It's just not that much of a priority. Now, interestingly, both those groups may or may not make a particular choice. Um, there are different product categories for which we are high involvement or low involvement. Um, so oftentimes with my students at NC State, I like to use the sock example. And I'll show a, a pair of um, sports socks. And I'll say, okay, how much time do you put into researching your purchase of socks? And there's always huge variance in the class, but a majority of people say, honestly, not much. I, I don't read reviews of socks. I don't Google them. I don't have a lot of information about what they're made of, or, you know, I really just don't think about it. So for those kinds of consumers, making things highly convenient and making any messages about them super easy to process. So if you aren't high involvement about sports socks, then a good way to sell you sports socks is to have them right up by the cash register, right? You know, those um, impulse purchases. So you're standing there and you're like, oh, that's right, I need socks. And you grab them and you don't care about looking at many brands and you don't really care about price points and you don't like your low involvement, you don't care. But there they are, excellent, you needed them, boom. But the other thing is that a lot of times people who are low involvement just don't get them. So you know for weeks, oh, my socks are in terrible shape, I ought to get some more, but you never remember it because it's just not a priority. And so messaging to those kinds of people have to be really quick. If you wanna show me a statistical chart about sock performance, I don't care. And if I see a statistical chart, I'm gonna look away. But if you have you know, a cute and funny, I don't know, kitten video with socks, I'll go, oh, <laughs> you've caught my attention. Uh, this is easy and fun and interesting to pay attention to. And so I'll watch for a moment. If you give me a really catchy argument about the socks, I might remember that. If you give me a really logical data-filled reason about the socks, I'm, I'm not even gonna process it enough to remember it. And it's only gonna be something that you know, has the pull to grab your attention and keeps you just for a moment to make its pitch and then go away that you're really gonna process. We've talked about um, sort of the best way to grab the attention of someone who may have vaccine apathy. Are there any states or countries using any of these methods right now? Are there any examples we could point to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we've been uh, primarily using advertising messaging toward hesitancy. So what do we do now to reach those low involvement um, consumers of vaccine, if you will? Uh, the thing we need to do is we need to make it super convenient, like those socks at the, um, at the cash register at Target. So the, there need to be pop-up clinics. It's got to be somewhere where people already are, at the airport, at you know, just somewhere where you are waiting and you're like, you know what, I, I guess I should get my vaccine. It wasn't top priority for me, but I am here now and I've got a moment and there they are. Um, 
So first thing is that kind of convenience and accessibility. The second thing is to give people messaging that isn't necessarily that top most expert um, endorser, but people who uh, particular groups uh, will pay attention to. It's people who grab your attention, people who um, are likable, who create positive emotion. Um, again, those are really good endorsers. And then finally, we've got to give people really catchy reasons, memorable, immediate, personal reasons for why they should get the vaccine. So all the messaging that has gone out to people thus far has been very much about do this for society. Of course, do it for you to protect you and your family, but also think about society. Think about um, how we're working toward herd immunity. And for people who are low involvement, that's just not compelling um, argument. It's too abstract. It's, it's not, you know, again, the stuff that grabs your attention is stuff that's happening right now to you. So that's where these uh, monetary lotteries and financial incentives can be really powerful. Because if you're not thinking about getting a vaccine and then there they are at the local baseball game or swimming pool or airport, and they're giving out free pizza and a t-shirt, well, you know, now I'm interested. Um, if it's a chance for a lottery, if it's a donut a day, these are the kinds of things that you know, all other things being equal can be the sweetener that helps you get it in the moment. Now, none of these, um, none of the, these incentives and messages will work for people who are hesitant. People are hesitant because they have concerns. Um, people who are hesitant because they have concerns need data, they need time, they need trusted sources. But for people who aren't really hesitant, but just, it's just not top priority. And that really does actually describe a lot of people. Um, for those people, it's about making it very convenient and having some immediate personal um, gains from getting the vaccine. And I know that we've just implemented um, a lottery here, the little vaccine lottery approach. Is it too early to tell if um, this is making a dent in the apathetic population? Is this something we need to wait a little while to see the results of or, or are signs encouraging? Signs are encouraging. So the um, Ohio lottery was the first uh, large scale $1 million lottery and the signs that they saw a bump up in vaccination rates was very strong. Now it hasn't been as strong in other places, but again, that's not a clear indicator of it. if it's working, it's how many people are in that group. Um, and so I do think that uh, because we aren't quite sure of what size the apathetic group is, um, it makes it much more difficult to assess the success of any particular um, campaign. And obviously you have a marketing background. How did you come to be involved um, in this topic specifically? Uh, is this... Was this an interest of yours? It's an interesting story. I, I look at it, I'm like, I don't know how many marketing professors are published in the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA. Um, this has certainly been a breakout year <laughs> for marketing research in medical journals. But actually it, it comes from just a, a lucky happenstance of being a professor in the triangle. So one of the real joys of scholarship uh, at NC State is is the proximity of Duke and UNC. 
So we have a lot of mixing of ideas across these three universities. And Duke has a really excellent school of medicine. And I happened to uh, meet and become a researcher with uh, Dr. Kevin Schulman, who was at Duke originally. Uh, this was about five years ago. Uh, he has since moved to Stanford, uh, where he's definitely doing great things. But um, when we met, he was uh, leading a program in clinical informatics. And he asked me if I would speak to the students and do a, a seminar for them on what marketing is and how it might impact them. I didn't realize how many consumer decisions people make in medicine and how much medical decisions are not optimized for people feeling good um, or engaged or confident in the choices they make. So it's like finding out that my field had all of these theories that could help in medicine um, and not just help doctors, you know, uh, in terms of doctors making profits. You know, it's not, a, it's not that kind of business model, but in terms of patients having a better experience. So in marketing, we know a lot about how do consumers have a good experience? Firms work really hard on that, right? Like restaurants work really hard to make the decor and the environment like really um, inviting. So like, why don't hospitals? And um, uh, hotels work really, really hard to get their frontline staff to be just like welcoming uh, over and over and over again to just a sea of strangers who check into hotels. Um, why is that kind of training not used in, you know, in medical clinics? Um, and even just little things like in marketing, we often offer people three choices, you know, bronze, silver, and gold. Uh, and why do we do this? Well, we do it because uh, the compromise effect says that we like middle options, that when we don't know what to choose and when there's uncertainty there, that middle option is so reassuring. That middle option um, is an intuition of the normal distribution and says, okay, this is probably the most likely to be right. But whenever doctors offer you a choice, they usually say either or, we could do this or that, what do you wanna do? So there were so many of these kinds of situations that over the course of the five years that um, I've been uh, talking to these students in clinical informatics uh, at Duke, uh, senior doctors, senior nurses, heads of um, hospital administrations, it's been just incredibly eye-opening for me. Um, I think probably one of the most amazing experiences was uh, I was allowed to shadow uh, doctors in the ICU to see how they engaged with patients and how patients made decisions while they're in that very scary environment. And it was really interesting. Um, it's not a good place to make decisions. There are a lot of distractions. There's a lot of noise. There are beeps. There are all manner of things that make you feel <laughs> very uh, uneasy. Uh, and that causes you to make a certain type of decision. So um, a lot of the things that we know in marketing uh, is something that can actually be translated quite easily to medicine to make it better for uh, patients, certainly, but for doctors as well. well that's fascinating. And it, it brings me to, um my last question, which is, you know, what's the coolest or most unusual thing that you came across while you were doing this work? I mean, it's unusual enough to have a marketing professor, you know, <laughs> in the ICU <laughs> saying, you know, this is 
this is not ideal how you're presenting these choices to these patients. Um, but what was the most fascinating or unusual thing you discovered while doing this? Well, I'll give you two because one is a wee bit of a downer, um, though it is so fascinating. Um, and then the other one uh, is, is just funny. So anyway, uh, one of the most interesting was uh, an opportunity to work with a neurologist who, um, who I met uh, through uh, Duke's uh, medical program. And he was uh, somebody who worked with people who had catastrophic strokes. So they came, they were in the ICU, um, in the neuro ICU, and um, he often wasn't working with talking with them, uh, he was talking to their loved ones. So the catastrophic strokes means the prognosis is not good. And so the decision, the choice that he had to talk to people about that was not going well was, what should we do here? He'd say, okay, this is the decision we want you to make about code status. In other words, do you want us to do every possible thing we can to resuscitate your loved one if they were to have a cardiac um, event while they were here? Or do you want us to label them as do not resuscitate uh, or DNR? And DNR is where we don't try to resuscitate them if they have a heart attack or some kind of pulmonary um, emergency. And this was the choice. Do you want us to do everything? or nothing. And of course it wasn't nothing. I mean, like there's palliative care, there's making people comfortable. Um, and of course, everything isn't necessarily everything. Like you can be intubated, but not um, have CPR done. And he said, I just hate asking people this. So what I did was I interviewed a lot of people who have this conversation with families. Um, and the people I interviewed were um, kind of best practice people. They were the people who were known in the hospital for being good at it. So I was looking at what do they do um, and what could even be better. And so um, one of my interviewees said, um, I know it's hard. We basically offer people a Porsche or a Pinto. And so the first thing you know, we talked about is, can you offer three choices? And you know, you know, how, what could those three choices be? Um, can, they, can these things be relabeled so that they, it isn't such a stark choice? Also, when are you asking people? A lot of times these decisions were being held at um, 4 or 5 p.m. right before people were shift switching shifts. And that's a terrible time right before dinner, you know, when people have low blood sugar. Um, there was no, um, they would talk to anyone who was in the patient's room. So there was no sense that the, the spouse or partner um, would have sort of more voice than any random friend or relative who happened to be in the room. I mean, there's so many things that could make for better experience. And so it was like, if you can imagine, it's, uh, it's a really strange thing to think about from a marketing perspective, like how do you make a loved one's death a better experience? And yet, isn't that a really wonderful thing to work on? You know, to think about, okay, what could we do? How could we make this decision easier for you? How could we play music that would make you feel better? That would make this environment seem less scary to you? How could we do some you know, simple things to help you walk away from this feeling kind of built up rather than anxious? Uh, and so I like the idea that we can take all of those ideas for marketing to make this really tragic, but you know, uh, uh, unfortunately a, you know, a situation that comes to, you know, comes to us all in a way um, and make it more positive.
the happiest thing to come out of this whole year of just amazing research was uh, two things. One is I was contacted by the World Bank to take all of the strategies that Kevin and I had crafted for the New England Journal of Medicine uh, with a US lens and work on them to adapt them so they could be used in any region of the world. So come up with a customized map for each particular region of the world. And so to think that uh, this is gonna be used all over the world was so fulfilling. I had conversations with um, people on the ground in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not an easy place to be a healthcare worker. Uh, I had conversations with people in Iraq. I mean, just like all these interesting places and they're gonna be using this research. But possibly the most gratifying was when I received a personal email from um, Chancellor Woodson to me saying, hey, I just happened to open up my uh, issue of science today and I read an interview with you. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that always is the best one, right? <laughs> yeah, and so I thought, ah, that's the best. My chancellor saw my work. Uh, and uh, yes, as a marketing professor, I may never be in science again, but, um, but Dr. Woodson saw it when it was. And so that, yeah, that counts for a lot. Well, thank you so much for being here today and talking to me about, you know, vaccine apathy and what we can do to solve it and all the interesting ramifications for marketing. We've been speaking today with Stacy Wood, the Langdon Distinguished University Professor of Marketing at NC State's Poole College of Management. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening.